Service or Circus, chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let all things be done decently and in order is basic principle for the conduct of the ministry of the church. Apparently, young Timothy was having some problems applying this principle to the assemblies in Ephesus. The public worship services were losing their order. They were losing their effectiveness because both men and the women, members of the church, were disobeying God's word. Often what we think of is the, quote, freedom of the spirit or the carnal ideas of some Christians who is not walking in the spirit. Eventually this freedom becomes anarchy and the spirit of God is grieved as the church gradually moves away from the standards of God's word. To counteract this tendency, Paul exhorted the men and the women in the church and reminded them of their spiritual responsibilities. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, um, first of all, indicates that prayer is most important in the public worship of the church. It's sad to see how prayer has lost importance in many churches. And, and uh, yes, in many churches. You know, if, if a pastor is to announce a banquet, all, all, all sorts of people will come out to that banquet. They'll come out to attend that banquet. They'll be coming out of the woodwork to attend that banquet. But you know what? If the pastor announces a prayer meeting, we, it, we, it, we would be blessed if the ushers show up just by themselves. Not only have the special meetings for prayer um, lost stature in most of our local churches, but even prayer in the public services is greatly minimized. Many pastors spend more time on the announcements than they do in prayer. Is that not, not sad? Is that not a very sad situation? Because you know the old saying, no prayer, no power. Much prayer, much power. So prayer was as much a part of the apostolic ministry as preaching the word of God. Yet some pastors spend hours, as I said, preparing their sermons, but never prepare their public prayers. And I'm not saying um, their prayers, you know, have to be written out. The pastor has to write out every single word and he has to read every single word, but that he think through what he will pray about. And this will keep the pastoral prayer from becoming dull and, and just a mere repetition of what's prayed um, every week or what, what was prayed the previous week even. But the church members also need to be prepared to pray. Our hearts must be right with God and our hearts must be right with each other. We must really want to pray and not pray simply to please people. This is what the Pharisees did. See Matthew chapter 6 verse 5. Or not just simply pray to fulfill a religious duty. When a local church ceases to depend on prayer, God ceases to bless its ministry. In verse 1, there are at least seven different Greek nouns for prayer. And four 
of them are used here. Supplications carries the idea of, quote, offering a request or a felt need. Prayers is the commonest term for this activity, and it emphasizes the sacredness of prayer. We are praying to God. Prayer is an act of worship, not just an expression of our wants and, and an expression of our needs. There should be reverence in our hearts as we pray to God. There should be a focus in our hearts as we pray to God. Intercessions is best translated petitions. We make a petition unto the Lord. We make a request of the Lord. So this same word is translated prayer in 1 Timothy 4 and 5, where it refers to blessing the food that we eat. It's rather obvious that we do not intercede for our food in the usual sense of that word. So the basic meaning is to draw, quote, to draw near to a person and converse confidently with him. So it suggests that we enjoy fellowship with God so that we have confidence in him as we pray. Giving of thanks is definitely a part of worship and it's a part of prayer. We not only give thanks for answers to prayer, but for who God is and what he does for us in his in his grace and by his grace so we should not simply add our thanksgiving say to the end of a selfish prayer thanksgiving should be an important ingredient in all of our prayers in fact sometimes we need to imitate david and uh, present to God only thanksgiving with no petitions at all just thanking God for all the things he has done see Psalms 103 prayer and supplication let's see prayer and supplication or petition with thanksgiving are a part of Paul's formula for God's peace in our hearts See Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It's worth noting that Daniel, the great prayer warrior, practiced this kind of praying. The objects of prayer in verses 1 and 2. All men, quote, all men makes it clear that no person on earth is outside the influence of believing prayer. We have no examples of exhortations that say we should pray for the dead. If we, should, if we should pray for the dead, Paul certainly had a good opportunity to tell us in this section of his letter. Now, I'm just stating that in parentheses, so to speak, because people do pray for the dead. But there's no scriptural um, instruction to do that. So anyway, this means that we should pray for the unsaved and we should pray for the saved for people near us and people far away, for enemies as well as friends. And unfortunately, the Pharisees, they did not have this universal outlook in their prayers. They centered their attention primarily on Israel. But Paul urged the church to especially pray for those in authority. 
the godless emperor Nero was on the throne at that time and the believers were supposed to pray for him. Even when we cannot respect men or women that are in authority, we must respect their offices. We must honor their offices and we must pray for them because that's what the Bible tells us to do. In fact, it is for our own good, actually, that we do so. Quote, that we may live peacefully and, and peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It says in 1 Timothy 2. So the early church was always subject to opposition and persecution. So it was wise to pray for those in authority. And then quiet, quote, quiet, refers to circumstances around us, while peaceful refers to a calm attitude within us. The results should be lives that are godly and honorable. To be sure, Paul has not named all the persons that we can and should pray for, since when he said, quote, all men covers the matter fully. We can't pray for everybody in the world by name, but we certainly ought to pray for those that we know and know about. Because it's a good thing to do and because it pleases God is the very reason why. So the reasons for prayer, verse, verses 3 through 4, the word good is a key word in Paul's pastoral epistles. The Greek word emphasizes the idea of something being intrinsically good, not just good in its effects. Certainly, prayer of itself is a goodly practice and brings with it many good benefits. But prayer is also pleasing to the Lord. It pleases the Father when his children pray as he has commanded them to pray. The Pharisees prayed in order to be, what? Praised by men. See Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Or they prayed to impress other worshipers. It says that in Luke 18. True Christians pray in order to please God. This suggests that we must pray in the will of God. Because it certainly does not please the Father when we pray as selfish prayers. Oftentimes it's said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but it's, it's to get God's will done on earth. And though some, some might ask, what is God's will? The salvation of lost souls, for one thing. We can pray for, quote, all men, because it is God's will that all men come to the knowledge of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. God loved the world, it says in John 3.16, and Christ died for the whole world. Jesus died on the cross that he might draw all men to salvation. And this doesn't mean, does not mean all people without exception for Certainly, the whole world is not going to be saved. It means all people without distinction. It means Jew. It means Gentile. It means rich and poor, 
religious or pagan. If God doesn't want anyone to perish, then why are so many lost? Someone might ask, but God is long-suffering with lost sinners, even delaying his judgment that he might come, that they might come to Christ. See 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Bible says, but salvation depends on a, quote, knowledge of the truth. Not everyone has heard the truth of the gospel, and many who have heard have rejected it. We can't explain the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but realize that both are taught in the Bible and are harmonized in God's great plan of salvation. We do know that prayer is an important part of God's program. It's, a, it's an important part of his program for reaching out to a lost world, which is why Jesus Christ came and died. So we have the responsibility of praying for lost souls and making ourselves available to share the gospel with others. And then in verses 5 through 7, many believers do not realize that prayer is based on the work of Jesus. As the God-man, Jesus Christ is the perfect, he is the perfect mediator between the holy God and his failing children. One of Job's complaints had to do with the absence of a mediator who could take uh, his message to the throne of God. In Job 9 verse 3 it says, There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. So since there is only one God, there is need for only one mediator, and that mediator is Jesus Christ. There is no other. No other person can qualify. Jesus Christ is both God and man, and therefore can be the umpire between God and man. So in his perfect life and substitutionary death, he met the just demands of God's holy law. He was the ransom, quote, ransom for all. The word ransom means a price paid to free a slave. Let me say that again. The word ransom means, quote, a price paid to free a slave. Now, his death was on behalf of all. Though the death of Christ is efficient, only for those who trust him, it is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. Jesus said that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Christ died for, quote, all men, and God is willing for, quote, all men to be saved. So how does this good news get out to a sinful world? God calls and he ordains messengers who take the gospel to lost sinners. And Paul was such a messenger. He was a preacher, an apostle. He was a teacher. And the same God who ordains the end, the salvation of the lost, also ordains the means to the end, the prayer and preaching of the word. This good news is not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. If the basis for prayer is the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross, 
then prayer is the most important activity in a church. Not to pray is to slight the cross. To pray only for ourselves is to deny the worldwide outreach of the cross. To ignore lost souls is to ignore the cross. All men, all people is the key to this paragraph. We pray for all because Christ died for all. And it's God's will that all men be saved. So we must give ourselves to God, be part of his worldwide program to reach people before it's too late. In verse 8, the attitude in prayer, Paul stated definitely that men should pray in the local assembly. Both men and women prayed in the early church, but the emphasis here is totally on the men. You know, it's common to find women's prayer meetings, but not often do we find men's prayer meetings. If the men do not pray, the local church will not have dedicated um, leaders to oversee its ministry. It was customary for Jewish men to pray with their arms extended and their hands open to heaven. Our traditional, let me share this with you, because the tra traditions of men, we've got to get away from and we've got to get back to the gospel. Our traditional posture for bowing the head, folding the hands, and closing the eyes is nowhere found in our commanded or commanded in scripture. Do you realize that? Actually, there are many prayer postures found in the Bible, and I'll state a few. There is standing with outstretched arms. There is kneeling. There is standing. There is sitting, bowing the head, lifting the eyes, falling on the ground. The important thing is not the posture of the body, but the posture of the heart. Paul stated three essentials for effective prayer. And the first was holy hands. So obviously this means a holy life. This means clean hands was a, a symbolic of a blameless life. If we have sin in our lives, we cannot pray and expect God to answer us. Without wrath would be the second one. This is the second essential. And it requires that we be in good terms with one another. How many know people that they're not in good terms with each other even in the churches? I've seen plenty of it over the years. And then the third was without anger. And a better translation uh, might be a better translation. A person who is constantly having trouble, say with other believers who is a troublemaker rather than a peacemaker, cannot pray and get answers from God. Doubting suggests that we must pray in faith, but the word really means disputing. When we have anger in the heart, we often have open disagreements with others. Christians should learn to disagree without being disagreeable. We should do all things without murmurings and disputings, as it says in Philippians 2.14. Effective praying then demands that I be and you be in right relationship with God. 
holy hands and with lifting up holy hands and with my fellow believers without murmurings and disputings. And Jesus taught the same truth, though some will deny it. I, I've heard them deny it. Mark eleven twenty four through 26. If we spent more time preparing to pray and getting our hearts right before our God, our prayers would be more effective. Then in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, because of its oppressive connotations, the word submission makes some people see red, especially some women. Some well-meaning writers have even accused Paul of being a crusty old bachelor who was anti-woman. And those of us who, who hold uh, to the ins inspiration and authority of the Word of God know that Paul's teaching came from God and not from himself. If we have a problem with what the Bible says about women in the church, the message is not with Paul. It's not with Peter, but with the Lord who gave the word. You got a problem with God. You got a problem with what God's word said. You got a problem with obeying God. The word translated subjection in 1 Timothy 2.11 is translated submitting. It's translated submit in Ephesians 5.21 through 22 and submitting. And Colossians 3.18, it liter literally means to rank under, quote, to rank under. So anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and it has to do with authority, not with value or ability. A colonel is, a higher, in, is higher in rank than a private. But that does not necessarily mean that the colonel is a better man than the private. It only means that the colonel had a higher rank and therefore more authority. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Let all things be done decently and in order. And this is a principle um, of God's. God follows, it's a principle that God follows in his creation, actually, just as in an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority. So society would be in chaos without submission. Children should submit to their parents because God has given parents the authority to train up their children and discipline them in love. And then here in um, employees should submit to employers and they should obey them. Citizens should submit to government authorities, even if the authorities are not Christian. <laughs> I just saw somebody's mouth drop open. Yes, even if the authorities are not Christian. Submission is not subjugation. Submission is recognizing God's order in the home and the church and joyfully obeying it. So when a Christian wife joyfully submits to the Lord and to her own husband, it should bring about the best in her. Anybody say amen to that? Submission is the key to spiritual 
growth and ministry. Husbands should be submitted to the Lord. Christians should submit to each other. And wives should be submitted to the Lord and to their husbands. So the emphasis in this section in 1 Timothy 2 verses 9 through 15 is on the place of a woman in the local church. Paul admonished these believing women to give evidence of their submission in several ways. And one of those ways was in modest dress in verse 9. The contrast here is between the art artificial glamour of the world and the true beauty of a godly life. Paul didn't forbid the use of jewelry. He didn't forbid the use of lovely clothing, but rather the excessive use of them as substitutes, as substitutes for the true beauty of a, quote, a meek and quiet spirit as it says in 1 Peter 3. So a woman who depends only on externals is going to soon run out of ammunition. She may attract attention, but she will not win lasting affection. Perhaps the latest fashion fads were tempting the women in the church at Ephesus, and maybe Paul had to remind Timothy to warn the women not to get trapped in that. The word, the word translated modest in 1 Timothy 2.9 simply means decent and, in or, and orderly. So it's related to the Greek word from which we get the English word cosmetic. A woman's clothing should be decent. A woman's clothing should be orderly and should be in good taste. The word shamefacedness literally means modesty and avoidance of extremes. A woman who possesses this quality is ashamed to go beyond the bounds of what is decent and what is proper. And then sobriety comes from a Greek word that means having a sound mind and good sense. It describes an inner self-control, a spiritual radar that tells a person what is good and what is proper. Ephesus was a wealthy commercial city and some women there competed against each other for attention and popularity. In that day, expense, expensive hairdos arrayed with costly jewelry were an accepted way to get to the top socially. Paul admonished the Christian women to major on the inner person. Let me say that again. Paul admonished the Christian women to major on the inner person, the true beauty that only Christ can give. And that comes from our inward person, our heart. He did not forbid the use of nice clothing. He didn't for, did not forbid the use of ornaments or jewelry. He urged balance and pro propriety with the emphasis on modesty and holy character. In verse 10, Paul did not suggest that good works are a substitute for clothing. Rather, he was contrasting the, quote, cheapness of expensive clothes and jewelry with the true values of godly character and Christian service. Godliness is another key word in Paul's pastoral letters. 
Glamour can be partially applied on the outside, but godliness must come from within. We must never underestimate the important place that godly women played in the ministry of the church. The gospel message had a tremendous impact on them because it affirmed their value before God and their equality um, in the body of Christ or in the church, in the body of Christ. Galatians 3.28 Women had a low place in the Roman world, but the gospel changed that. There were devoted women who ministered to Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry. See Luke 8. They were present at his crucifixion and his burial. And it was a woman who first heralded the glorious news of his resurrection. Then in the book of Acts, we meet Dorcas. We meet Lydia, Priscilla, and godly women in the Berean and the Thessalonian churches. Paul greeted at least eight different women in Romans 16 and Phoebe, who, which, who carried the Roman epistle to its destination. She was a deaconess in a local church. Now, many believing women won their husbands to the Lord and then opened their homes for Christian ministry. In verse 11, Quote, the word silence is an unfortunate translation because it gives the impression that believing women were never to open their mouths in the assembly. This is the same word that is translated, quote, peaceable in 1 Timothy 2 and 2. Some of the women abused their newfound freedom in Christ and they created disturbances in the services by interrupting. It is this problem that Paul addressed in his admonition. So it appears that women were in danger of upsetting the church by trying to enjoy their freedom. Paul wrote a similar admonition to the church in Corinth. And through this admonition um, might apply primarily in, to speaking in tongues. In verses 12 through 15, women are permitted to teach. Older women should teach the younger women. Timothy was taught at home by his mother and his grandmother. But in their teaching ministry, they must not lord it over men. There's nothing wrong with a godly woman instructing a man in private. But she must not assume authority in the church and, and try to take the place of a man. She should exercise, quote, quietness and help keep order in the church. Paul gave several arguments to back up this admonition that the Christian men in the church should be spiritual leaders. The first is an argument from creation. Adam was formed first and then Eve. Yet we must keep in mind that Priority does not mean superiority. So man and woman were both created by God and in God's image. The issue is only authority. Man was created first. The second argument has to do with man's fall into sin. Satan deceived the women into sinning. 
The man sinned with his eyes wide open because Adam rejected the God-given order and he listened to his wife, disobeyed God and brought sin and brought death into the world. The submission of wives to their own husband is a part of the original creation. The disorder we have in society today results from a violation of that God-given order. I don't think Paul suggested that women are more gullible than men and thus more easily deceived. For experience proves that both men and women are deceived by Satan. On one occasion, Abraham listened to his wife. If you will all recall in Genesis 16, and he got into trouble. Later on, she gave him counsel and God told him to obey it. Genesis 21. So the creation of humans and their fall both seem to put the women in an inferior position. But she does have a ministry from God. There was probably a close relationship in Paul's mind between what he wrote here and what Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 3. The promise of the Savior who would be made of a woman in Galatians 4.4. 4. It, was, it was through a woman that the Savior came into the world. And we have to keep in mind that Jesus had an earthly mother. And not an earthly father. See Matthew 1.18 and Luke 1.34-35. But Paul taught a practical lesson. He promised that the woman would be kept safe through childbirth if they, speaking of both husband and wife, continued in sincere dedication to the Lord. So then some might ask, does this mean that Christian mothers will never die in childbirth? History and experience both tell us that they do. God has his purposes and his ways, and they are far above our ways, and they're far above our thoughts. See Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Paul laid down a general principle that encouraged the believing women of that day. Their ministry was not to run the church, but to care for the home and bear the children to the glory of God. Their home congregation would give them abundant opportunities for teaching the word and ministering to the saints. Godly women do have an important ministry in the local assembly, even though they are not called to be teachers of the word in a pastoral sense. If all is done, quote, decently and in order, then God will bless. Amen.